Good evening. Uh, my name is Daniel Bunza. Uh, I am a lecturer in management here at the school. Um, and um, I'd like to introduce a special guest uh, today. Um, we have here with us um, Anders uh, Dalvik, um, who was the um, chief executive officer of IKEA uh, from 1999 till 2009, um, a time uh, during of course, as you surely know, um, IKEA enjoyed unprecedented growth and expansion, while at the same time championing the causes of the social and environmental responsibility. Mr. Anders has recently uh, written a book, uh, The IKEA Edge, uh, to show how the motives of profit and the social good can work in harmony to benefit organizations. Now, uh, it's very appropriate that um, Mr. Dalvik would come here to the LSE uh, tonight. Uh, we are at the LSE. We pride ourselves uh, for being an institution that uh, not only teaches students how to go into business if they want to do so, uh, but also uh, broader ways of thinking in the social sciences. And I think that this is a lot of what Mr. Dalvik will be discussing tonight. Um, and also, as a buyer, customer, and user of IKEA furniture, I'm very happy to uh, see uh, the man behind uh, my coffee table. <laughs> so um, the plan is as follows. Um, Mr. Dalwick will uh, speak for 45 minutes. Then um, we'll have some time uh, for Q&A. And our session will finish briefly, uh, sorry, promptly at 8 p.m. And then there'll be a chance to uh, get some book uh, signatures outside. Uh, so for now, um, please uh, join me in welcoming Anders Dalvik. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Very nice to be here. Uh, yes, just maybe briefly about my background. I've spent my entire life uh, at IKEA. Uh, when I finished my graduate studies, studies I, I I tried to get into the company and I managed and then I worked myself up and um, so 26 years at IKEA and the last 10 of those as, as CEO and, and president of the company. Um, what I'm doing now is that I'm a non-executive director for a number of companies uh, so I have kind of a more diverse portfolio of jobs if you like. I'm, I'm on the board of H&M uh, uh, which you probably know uh, of a fashion retailer. Um, a couple of other uh, retailers, Swedish retailers that you probably don't know. Uh, and then uh, Kingfisher here in the UK, who is the holding company of B&Q, uh, Castor Arm, Abrico Depot DIY retailer company, uh, pretty global such. And now I'm, I'm another company you probably know very well that I will be entering into the board now is Pret-a-Manger, uh, which I'm sure you are also customers of. Um, uh, on top of that, I do a bit of charity work and I, I do a bit of lecturing like this uh, in, in various business schools and I um, have then written this book that I, I'm going to talk about tonight. The reason why I wrote this book was that um, it really started as an idea of a debrief of what I had learned during my 26 years at IKEA uh, because once you're in the middle of it, you don't really have time to reflect very well on a lot of things because you're so operational. And then when I finished, I thought it would be a good idea to, what, what are the learnings that I can take away from, 
from all these years at IKEA. And then uh, gradually this, this, this idea uh, evolved and, and um, uh, I thought maybe this was worth publishing and I found some publisher who thought it was uh, and, and here we are. So this is really more of a management book than a, it's not a gossip book about the founder of IKEA or the people in the company or anything like that. It, it's, it's more the, the business findings uh, as I see them uh, or, or the learnings from my time with IKEA. Um, during those 10 years as a CEO, uh, I just to brag a little bit about a performance, uh, this, the, the company grew uh, tripled in sales from about 7 billion euro to 21.5 billion euro. So we had an average turnover of about 11% growth every year for those 10 years, including a couple of economic downturns. Uh, we reduced prices to the customers with 20% during that time. So Billy Bookcase is 20% cheaper today than it was 10 years ago. And we also allow profitability average around 12-13% uh, every year during these years. We added 55,000 employees to the company. So I'm not saying this primarily to brag about my achievements, but really to, to give some credibility to what I have to say. So, so um, um, the idea with the book and what I'm talking about is that what are the good principles for a successful business and maybe more importantly like Daniel said can you combine a prof profitable business with doing social good or is there a conflict between these two so uh, that's really the, the the questions that I would like to, to to answer in these 45 minutes now I had one more slide and I don't know if that's possible to put on or if it's only this one because I know I sent them over uh, uh, and that's the only slide I want to show. Is that the number? Do you have one more slide on there? Or is that the only one you have? No? See, it comes on. Yeah, this one here. Can you just click on that one? Thank you. Oh, there we go. Yes, so I, I tried to condense uh, the learnings down to four cornerstones of good business and I'm going to talk about what that is and, and how, how we did that at IKEA. The first one is about having a vision with a social ambition and a strong value base. And, and this really deals with uh, how to, to attract, retain and motivate the best people. Uh, in the company. That's really uh, the engine of the company, of course, is the people. So how do you get the best people and how do you retain them and how do you keep them motivated? My second point, uh, differentiation to control of the value chain is, is about the business model itself. You know, how, how do you make that work? <coughs> and this is, of course, retail-oriented and I'm not sure to what extent it will apply to all kinds of business sectors, but, uh, but this is for retail. The third one is how, how do you how do you take a concept global? How do you get out of your home market and become successful in, in various types of markets, whether mature markets or developing countries uh, or anything else? And the fourth has to do with what type of ownership uh, should you have to be successful, <coughs> in my opinion. So if we start with a vision and a social ambition, uh, a vision with a social ambition, why, why is that important and how can that help the company? I think from a... From a from a, a, the perspective of, uh, 
of, of, the, of the globe, so to speak, or the world, is of course um, important if the business um, sees that it can contribute to the world in some respect. From, from the perspective of the business, I think the two main uh, reasons for why a vision or the purpose of the vision with social ambition is important is, is it helps the business in, its, um, in, in gaining trust. Uh, with the general public and the, all, the, all their stakeholders, and it, it helps in the reputation of the business. That's one part. And the other part is what I said earlier, how it helps attract and, and motivate the best people. If we just stay with the subject of, of, of gaining trust in society uh, on a more general level, I think we all see how, how trust in business in general seems to be deteriorating over time. I think when you read the newspapers every day, uh, there's always some stories about fraud or, or mismanagement. I mean, we, not, we have the extremes of Madoff and Enron and all these, but there's also the environmental disasters like BP in the Mexican Gulf, etc., etc., all the perks and bonuses of, of, of managers. There are stories every day that kind of fuels the, this growing gap, I think, in the trust that the general public holds in business and business itself. And one can, and there is also some research, um, well, there's a lot of research that is also uh, supporting this. I, I saw recently in the Economist some research that showed that uh, it's gone so far that even in the, the cradle of capitalism in the USA, uh, the belief that free market capitalism is the best form uh, of of of, of um, yeah, business practice, if you like has re been reduced from 80% to 60 or 50% in the US over the last few years. The people don't even believe, and I'm, I'm a really a proponent of free market capitalism. I think that is a fantastic uh, form of, of markets, uh, capitalism, so to speak, but, but it's just how it's been done. The trust in business has deteriorated, it would seem. Why is this then? I think one is, of course, the increase in transparency society, both what's come out of technology with internet and all that stuff, but also how regulations, policies and governance from governments has increased the transparency in, in, in the business. So, of course, nothing can be hidden anymore and, and a lot of things. I don't think business managers in general are any worse than they used to be 15, 20 years ago. They're probably much better. It's just that today everything is exposed. Everyone sees everything, basically. <coughs> So that's, of course, one reason. The other reason th that I think is important is that the values in society has changed and is changing quite a lot over the last 15, 20 years, but business has not really changed. So <coughs> the, the old, if you like, saying of the business of business is business, uh, I think was more accepted if we go back 15, 20 years than it is today. today the general public demands more from business, that the, the business should contribute in a bigger way to, to society. And there's also research that has, or is, I think, supporting this evidence. I've seen some research showing that in many of the European countries, only 50% of, of, of um, the public believes that the business of business is to make profit to the owners. They, they, all, they think that business has much, uh, or should do much more for society. <coughs> So if the values of society is changing and business is not, I think that is the simple reason why we have this growing distrust between general public and business. Uh, people in general think business should do more and business is struggling to do this or is kind of fighting to stay on doing what they always have been doing. 
The reactions to this um, from governments is regulations, generally speaking. I think uh, we've seen also here in the UK, you must have, have seen how Vince Cable is trying to regulate business being frustrated about compensations to managers, for instance. We've seen suggestions that, um, uh, for instance, the, the, the compensation to the CEOs in, in public companies in the UK should be decided by the, the uh, annual general meeting and not by the, by the board, as an example of how in the frustration that business is not behaving as they would like them to do, they are trying to restrict them further. <coughs> with various regulations. Now that could of course be one way to do it. I don't think it's the most constructive way of, of getting business to change the purpose of what they're doing or the way they're doing, conducting themselves. Because obviously when you do that you are forcing business people to do something that they really don't want to. <coughs> and and if, you, if it's something you don't believe in in your heart you probably won't do it very well. So the best way to do this I believe is to prove that you can actually, that there isn't a conflict of interest between doing good for society uh, and making money. And that's what I'm trying to, to, to show in, in the book uh, that I have been written, how IKEA have, has gone about doing this. Um, at IKEA we had, a, or we have a social a, a vision or a purpose with the business with a social ambition, and that is to create a better everyday life for the majority of people. This, this uh, statement was um, written by the founder Ingvar Kamprad in 1976 and his argument for this or how he argued around this statement was that most beautiful thing in this world whether it's fashion, cars, home furnishing, uh, jewelry or whatever is only for those with a lot of money. And IKEA's mission in this world is to change this within the world of home furnishing then and see to it that also those with limited financial means have the opportunity to uh, get uh, good home, or home function or good design, good quality uh, at low prices. <coughs> so that was his, and this I think is an extremely strong uh, vision, if you like, vision statement. <coughs> now, uh, saying these kind of things, I mean, I'm sure you're all skeptical about business coming out with beautiful vision statements and, and, and that this is only another one. And, and there are some of those around, of course. The, the, the trick is to make it credible. I mean, you have to obviously deliver on that vision uh, statement in order to, to, to be credible. And whether IKEA has or not, I think you would be good judges of that if you have been customers at IKEA. <coughs> but at least, and that's also something I'm taking up in my book. If you have a vision like that with a social ambition, you have to, it has to be uh, um, present in all your decision making, in all the strategies that you are uh, putting forward in your company. This has to be the guideline for that. You can't have the mission statement there and then you go on with your business doing something totally different. Obviously, I mean, the general public will see through that and the employees will see through that in five seconds. So you need to be credible in everything you do. So how did IKEA go about living up to this mission statement? I, I obviously can't tell you, talk about everything we did, but just to give you a couple of um, examples, the whole financial model of IKEA if you like, is based on the principle of, of creating a better everyday life through uh, offering good home furnishing at, at very low prices. 
you can say that IKEA's business model is built on the premise that our first priority is always to see how we can reduce the price to the customers even further. By reducing the price to the customers, we create volume and with a, a strict cost control that delivers the bottom line result. <coughs> now, this sounds obvious, but most retailers don't do this. They, they actually go around this subject totally differently. Their uh, first, second, and third priority is how they can grow the margin, i.e. how they can increase the price to the customer <coughs> in various ways, either so that the customer don't see that the price is increased or do it in some dubious way, or they try to add some uh, value to the product so that they can increase the price, or they invest heavily in marketing to promote the brand itself, and hopefully through that they can uh, increase the price. So, so finding various ways to increase the sales price uh, and growing their margin and letting that go to the bottom line and to the shareholders is, if you like, the 99% of all retailers, that's what they are uh, you know, putting all their time into. So as I said, IKEA went, gross margin was not a priority at IKEA. As I said, everything we did, uh, we tried to find ways how can we reduce the sales price to the customer. So all the work that went into the supply chain in order to reduce the produ production price or the, or the purchase price of the products, uh, we tried to then um, give that benefit not to the shareholders through higher profits, but through uh, lower sales prices. And then the mechanism of, of low sales prices creating the volumes with low costs created the bottom line results. And that worked very well. As I told you, our bottom line result, our operating profit was well below, ahead of, or higher than 12% every year for the 10 years I was there. So a very different business model that is, I think, well aligned with the vision of the company. Uh, another example is how IKEA, there is an internal mantra that, uh, in IKEA that is used in all these discussions um, about everything really is that most people have more time than money. Now you may argue that this is not the case uh, for you guys, but uh, I think for most people that is still a reality in most parts of the world. <coughs> so using that, uh, uh, the whole idea of the, of the, co of the concept of, of IKEA really is that um, we should not add things to the products that inflates the price. So uh, for those who have time, there should always be an option to buy the product at the lowest possible price, i.e. you bring it home yourself, you put it together yourself, you do all the stuff basically, and then you get the best price. So uh, there, were, you know, we had, there were thousands of reasons put forward for different product parts of the range to, for instance, include assembly in the product price or include transportation to the customer's home in the price or include some other services or others like that. Uh, but every time this came up, having the vision in mind, we always said no. Of course, these services could be, we could, uh, we could uh, provide them for you, but then you have to pay extra. But there should always be the price of the bare product at the lowest price so everyone could afford them. So that's another example, I think, of, of, of how the vision was reflected in the strategies of, of, of the company. Another one, I think, is also how we looked upon um, um, expanding into new markets, uh, where I, I would say all companies would 
potentially look at the new market and see where can we make the most money the fastest, and that would be the market you would enter uh, first. Um, that was not really a consideration uh, in, in, in IKEA when we looked at new markets. We, we looked, obviously, that we should be able to make money in that market, but we had a very long-term perspective of, of all these decisions. We could say, it's, if we go to Russia, no problem if it takes 10 years before we make a dime because we're in it for the long haul, and that, that will really take me to the ownership uh, uh, later. But the whole idea was that if we enter a market, we will be the same owners, and we will have this company for the next 50 years. So if we don't make money in the first 10, if we think it's a good proposition for the next 40 years after that, so, so be it. <coughs> so that in combination then with an owner who had this um, pathos, if you like, for trying to help people, we were often looking at, at emerging markets where we, we could really see that it would take a long time until we could be profitable here. But we would like to enter this market anyway because we think we have, with our mission and our vision, we have, some, we have a job to do in this country. We can help this country. Russia was an example of this. Uh, IKEA entered Russia in 1999 when uh, those few who were there left the country basically, or, or other international retailers uh, or companies, and others didn't dare enter because it was very turbulent economic times. Uh, we took a risk and, and, and went to Russia with this uh, vision of the company in mind. Um, uh, it was a calculated risk. We knew we could lose a lot of money, but we wouldn't jeopardize the company as a whole. Um, uh, now, in retrospective, we've had our problems in Russia, but we, what happened was, of course, us entering in '99, we got hold of some of the best retail locations you can imagine in Russia. I don't know if, how many of you have been in Moscow, uh, for instance, or seen any IKEA sites there, but, but we got hold of two, three hundred thousand square meter sites around the MCAT, which is the M25 of Moscow. Um, uh, at reasonable prices, if you like, and could establish IKEA stores there that you know will be fantastic for IKEA for the next 50 years. Uh, things that is impossible for those who, who came in 10 years later or five years later. It's just there, not there. So there are some very interesting business opportunities also um, when you have a vision that takes you in this direction. I think so. There are plenty of of, of um, of examples uh, that I think has shown to the employees of IKEA themselves and hopefully also to the customers that IKEA is credible with this vision of creating a better every life for the many people. And that, um, as I said, helped the company from a business perspective uh, a lot in terms of reputation. Uh, uh, and reputation can help you also be more profitable. So, so you can see how the social vision can help profitability here. Uh, examples of that is, is um, uh, when IKEA wants to come to a city and establish a store, uh, I would say in 100% in of the cases, the local authorities are extremely positive to IKEA coming there and are doing everything in their power to help find sites and get retail permissions, and et cetera, et cetera, for stores. And most stakeholders around those local cities are extremely positive to IKEA and helps us uh, get there. Now, if you look at another company like Walmart, 
who, who runs a similar business. Everyone is, is really trying to keep them out when they are trying to get into new cities in the US. And this, of course, has to do with how they are behaving as a, as a company towards their employees and towards the environment and, and a lot of other things. So I think that it has uh, in incredible impact on, on, on your business uh, decisions, whether you have established trust and, and a good reputation amongst the many stakeholders or not. Um, so, so that reputation risk is one. I heard, for instance, that when Nike was caught out with child labor in their factories, I think this was back in the 80s, um, that uh, sales went down about 50% in the US uh, short term. Obviously, it, it gained later, but it also, I mean, if, if, if you behave bad enough, if you like, uh, it can also have an impact on your sales figures. It probably takes a lot. I mean, most people will continue to buy from you, at least in the short term, even if you do some bad things, if you like. But if it's bad enough or if it's too many occasions, it will have an impact from a customer perspective as well. But most importantly, probably, then, uh, is how it helps you in gaining and attracting and motivating people. And, and um, I've found, and I mean, this I know because people tell me that in IKEA, that that uh, the reason many of them stay and are so incredibly motivated as they are is that they want to work for a company that they feel is doing something good for someone else and not just trying to make money for an anonymous or even anonymous shareholders or owner. I don't think most people go to work every day thinking, now I'm going to make my owner richer. and thinking this really uh, you know, makes me enthusiastic and motivated. You have to have some other meaning with what you do every day when you put in all these hours. And I know for me personally, I mean, I spent my entire career with IKEA and I had plenty of, of offers to go to other companies and make a lot of more money. But it never, you know, it, it wasn't an option. I never thought about that even because as long as you get reasonably paid, obviously you have to get reasonably paid, but as, as long as you are on that level, uh, having knowing that you go to work every day and, and do something for other people, of course, is incredibly motivating. <laughs> IKEA has been voted the most popular um, employer uh, in Sweden uh, for the last 10 years among any category you can think of, everything from students to people who already have jobs, Etc. Uh, Etc. Et in other countries where we are not so well known, we are maybe not number one. It's usually a domestic company, but very often in the top ten, top fifteen. <coughs> so, um, and that's obviously it's not because we pay everyone so much money. It's, it's obviously for other reasons that they want to to come to IKEA and stay with the company. Our our policy on pay has always been to pay in the middle of the pay band. And this goes for all levels, from checkouts up to managers. So we have had a very conscious policy of never um, paying in the top 25% of, 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 of the pay band in, in the, the category where we are. And the reason for that is that we don't want people who are primarily motivated by money. <coughs> because we know that as soon as one, someone comes along and, and you know, offers a buck more, uh, they will leave the company and, and go to them. So we want people who come to IKEA motivated by other things, as long as they get fairly paid. So I think, uh, and uh, I think this—it's an interesting point. This, uh, you know, ma ma many 
companies and CEOs who, who, who in, I'm sure you're in my opinion as well, uh, get, exa uh, get exaggerated pay and say they have to pay these salaries because otherwise you know, no one will want to come and, and work for them. Uh, that's obviously not true. I mean, uh, if you take IKEA as an example, uh, we, our salaries, uh, including my own, is, is on a level much, much lower than, than any of these big CEOs have. And, and we never lost any people. Uh, I had store managers here in the UK, and, and because IKEA is uh, seen as a, as a successful company, obviously people try to recruit people from, from IKEA. So the, the store managers here in the UK, they got telephone calls every week, basically. And, and, and I was the manager here in the UK for IKEA for four years, and I didn't lose one store manager in those four years. Uh, and, and, and as they said, we, we got offers that were twice the color we already have, uh, but we have enough, and, and uh, we enjoy so much working here because of the vision, because of the values, because of the freedom you give us uh, in our job, etc., etc. So other, other things were more important. So it is possible to, to keep good people without paying them exaggerated compensation. I think you have to pay a lot of money if you don't have a soul. I mean, if, if the company has nothing else than, than just make money for someone, then obviously you have to pay them to keep them. But if, if you have a company who, who have, like I said, a vision that they are doing something for others, uh, it's doing good for society, they have strong values, etc., then obviously you have something to offer to people that, that makes them want to stay and not just the money part. So, so the money part becomes important when all these other th things are not in place, in my opinion. <coughs> And that brings me to the to the values, the second part of this. Um, this was now we talked about uh, the vision, but also the value base here. IKEA has always seen the the company culture as as one of the key competitive advantages, if you like. So we are and have always invested enormously in in this. And and uh, and that's also a reason why a lot of these people. Uh, talked about store managers and others have stayed with the company is the values. They feel that uh, they have their friends at IKEA. When they go to work, it's people who think and share the values of them and, and, and they like being there every day. I think wh when you formulate values or company values, a mistake many companies do is that they, they get very focused on on fancy words like we are business minded or we are customer focused or or, 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 or things like that. Um, I think it's more important that your values speaks to very basic uh, human needs. Uh, needs like recognition, needs like togetherness, needs like being accepting to different people or, or various ethnic groups or gender or whatever. Um, so, so openness, honesty, uh, um, that the company has a high moral and ethical standards, etc. These type of basic values are more important to enforce, I think, than, than the ones who are more business driven. Because that's what keeps people. And, and, and what you want your, your culture, company culture and values for is, of course, to keep people uh, attracted to the company and motivated, and that's that's the reason why why you have them. <coughs> so so, and that's that I think is what IKEA has. Um, uh, as I said, the store managers 
of often said that one of the reasons they stayed obviously was the independence they had as store manager. They felt that they could really influence what they were doing in the store. If they worked for Tesco as a store manager, the job was to put the can of beans in the in the aisles. Basically, they were everything what they were told down to the last thing what to do. But in the IKEA store, they felt that they could really influence um, everything from layouts and, and pricing and and you, know, you name it. So so this freedom of responsibility was a really important ingredient. I think also when you when you have a when you want to enforce a strong value system in your company, uh, you need to at least when you're as big as IKEA, we had 125,000 people in the company when I left. You need to to integrate it very well in all your HR processes. Uh, you can't just rely on managers in general being good examples of your company culture and, and, and therefore everything will work. Uh, well what we did was that we, we put this in place in all our HR processes. For instance, in the recruitment phase when we took in new people, we had an instrument called value-based uh, recruitment where all recruiters, and I'm sure we recruit or we interviewed a couple of hundred thousand people every year somewhere in the company, uh, had to go through this, mo this process of, of um, establishing whether the individual was right for IKEA or not. So that was a standardized instrument, if you like, that, that, that was used. And it was not like asking you, are you cost conscious? Everyone would know how to answer on that question. But obviously, indirectly, we found out uh, as a first screening, would this person fit in IKEA or not? Then in the management review process, <coughs> uh, the manager's ability or, or scoring as a good example of the IKEA culture was incredibly important for whether they were promoted or not. And we had <coughs> an uh, anonymous internal survey system where uh, basically all coworkers were interviewed uh, every year on a variety of issues, and, and one was uh, to what extent their manager was a good example of the IKEA culture. So we knew, you know, among our whatever 20, 10, 20,000 managers in the company, we knew exactly who. Uh, who scored well on this or not. So we could look at those who didn't and see how we could help them improve or if that didn't work, help them find another job. So, so this, uh, we spent a lot of time um, uh, finding out about this thing and also being very strict on who we promoted or not. Uh, and, and there were occasions where we also had people leave who produced extremely good results from a profit and loss perspective, but they were no, uh, not good uh, examples of, of, of the values that we had in the company. And that is a, a difficult decision to, to take, and I think many, in many companies you don't do that. As long as they produce the business results, you, you kind of live with the fact that they are not so good managers. Uh, but you have to be able to take those decisions because it sends an incredibly strong message in the organization if you show in actions that the values are as important uh, as, as we thought they were. So, so uh, and then we had obviously we spent a lot of, we invested a lot of money in the training and development process as well, all induction programs. We had special leadership programs based on the IKEA values that, that our managers went through. So we had this built into all parts of the HR process. <coughs> and that's how we tried to, 
to establish and, and, and keep a strong uh, value system in the company. When I left, about 70% of our 120,000 co-workers felt, according to our internal surveys, that their manager was a good example of the IKEA culture. And I'm not saying 70%, there's still 30% left, so that's a lot of work to do. But that was the, the situation uh, at that time. This is an important um, subject, and I think everyone would, would uh, agree that uh, HR or people is, is incredibly important. But the question is, of course, to what extent companies actually uh, work hard with this or not. Another research that I saw recently um, showed that, and I think this was one of the main universities in the US who have made this research, uh, asking a lot. Um, the conclusion was, at least, that in most companies, or the average, about 33% of coworkers, including managers, um, agreed that they were putting in all their efforts uh, when they went to work every day. So they were really committed and went to work every day, full of energy, putting in everything they had. On average, of all companies, only 33% of the people going to work every day do this. So, so you pay, or the, all these companies out there, they pay 67% of their co-workers a salary to go to work and maybe put in 50% of, of their energy or you know, thinking about what they're going to do in the evening or, or a lot of other things. So, but the, the top performing companies in this research, the result was 67% who went to work and put in their whole heart in it every day. So, I mean, I think it's pretty logical. You don't have to be Einstein to, to understand that if 67% of the people going to work every day put in everything they have, uh, and your competitors, 33% does it, uh, you have an incredible competitive advantage. <coughs> so, so, um, so I think, and I think that was one of the real success criteria of IKEA, was the importance that we gave our values, corporate culture, and our vision, and how we integrated that into everything we did, and how that made our people, or made IKEA get the best people, keep them, and keep them motivated all the time. <coughs> now, time flies. I think I have to move on to speak a little bit about the other here as well. Differentiation through control of the value chain. In the retail sector, or in most sectors in the retail, within retail, you can say that you have two competing powers. You have the owners of products and brands on the one hand, and then you have the retailers on the other hand. So owners of products would be companies like Unilever and Nestle in the food retail sector. And the retail side, you would have the, 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 the other part would be Tesco's and Morrison's, etc. And this is in basically, in most sectors you have this. You have it in electronics, you have it in DIY, you have it in the food sector, etc., etc. So, so what happens is, of course, that the stronger the brands, or the FMCGs, as they are called, these companies are, the more money they make and the less money the retailers make. <coughs> so the power here um, defines a little bit the profitability of the sectors. <coughs> So if you look at the food sector, for instance, where Unilever, Nestlé, I think, is one of the most profitable businesses in the world, uh, the, 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 the brand owners are extremely strong, and the food retailers are not. So you, bottom line result level in food retailing is between 1% and 3%, something like that, in most countries of the world. <coughs> 
So basically nothing, I mean, the retail part of it, whilst the, the product and brand owners own, earns a lot of money. Now, if you move into the DIY sector, brands becomes a little bit less important. I think you wouldn't know so many brands when you walk into the DIY store that you absolutely have to have. And therefore, the brand owners are a little bit less powerful, and the retail sector makes a little bit more money. So in the DIY sector, you will see um, profitability around 7%-ish, maybe for, for companies like B&Q and, and Walmart, or, uh, D Home Depot and, and um, Castorama and these. So, uh, and if you look at the, the electronic sector, uh, we all know they're not making any money at all, <coughs> basically. Uh, so, but then if you, if you look at the, the, the home furnishing and the fashion sector, where you have some companies where there aren't these FFCGs or brand owners, and, and, and the companies control the whole thing. They control both the products and the retail end, like IKEA. <coughs> then profitability as I told you, moved up to between 12 and 15 percent. So, and that's where we have, that's the profitability level of companies like H&M or, or Zara Inditex as well, the fashion retailers, where you also have full control of the whole, of the whole supply chain or the whole value chain. <coughs> so obviously it makes a hell of a difference if you control both the product end and the customer retail end of the business uh, or not. Now the trend, uh, I mean, and here everyone is fighting. You see the the product owners start opening some shops. I mean, you, you, we all know how Apple started off as being a, a brand product owner, and now they have their own stores. So they are integrating in that direction. And then you see the retailers trying to uh, more and more get their own brands out in the stores and, and, and trying to take over in, in that direction. And I would say in many of the traditional sectors, like food sector, DIY, electronics, <coughs> Uh, I think the the winners, we don't know that, but the winners may be the retailers who are, I mean, they own the customer contact and they are also the ones who are gradually, uh, and, and I don't think you, any retailer you talk to will have it today as one of the main strategies is how to increase the, the share of own brands. I mean, that's just on the table uh, as a main priority for everyone. Uh, food retailers, I think they have around 30% own brand, at, at, uh, generally speaking, today. And this could probably go up to about 50%. I think it's difficult for food retailers to go to 100% <coughs> for a variety of reasons. And, and um, what will happen probably is that the low-price, mid-price brands are the ones that will go and become own brands, and then you know, the high-end brands will, will stay, because they are so well-established that, that retailers have to keep them. <coughs> So, so that, that's, uh, and, and this transformation is interesting because I, I, the question is, will they succeed, all these retailers, in transforming from pure retailers, having other people's products, to developing their own product range and develop such an interest in that product range that, that you guys will all want it. <coughs> I think most retailers underestimate what it takes to transform from a pure retailer to a product developer and retailer. It's a totally different competence to develop products and brands uh, than to run uh, stores. <coughs> and this, I think, is often underestimated, so to speak. So I think uh, we still don't know. We haven't really seen any big retailer who have taken the leap all the way. Uh, everyone is trying. Companies like IKEA 
uh, and H&M have had both basically from the beginning and I think that makes a lot of difference. <coughs> so they have over 20, 30, 40, 50 years built up this competence both in, in developing brands and products and uh, developing the stores internally. <coughs> uh, and IKEA, uh, for IKEA this started um, fairly early and, and that, that's more of a <coughs> maybe interesting story, curiosity, how that all happened. IKEA started as a mail order business selling everything uh, from pens to yeah, whatever the founder could get hold of when he was young. <coughs> and then it gradually transformed into a mail order company for home furnishing because there was a lot of factory factories around where he lived. And then he, he found out that to sell furniture you needed a showroom and then, then that was the start of stores. Uh, you know, he had to show it to the public. Um, and then at some stage back in the 60s uh, other furniture retailers in Sweden decided that IKEA was a too big threat for them. So they persuaded also, at this, at this stage, IKEA just sold supplier models like everyone else. They didn't have their own range development. So these other home furnishing retailers in Sweden, they said that um, now either you stop uh, uh, supplying IKEA or we won't buy from you. They told all the, the Swedish furniture factories and furniture suppliers. So, um, so they. Um, they did this, they said no to IKEA, and suddenly I, IKEA or Ingvar Kamprad uh, and his team at the time didn't have any suppliers in Sweden anymore. So what he did, he took the ferry to Poland, and this was before the wall came down. So this was uh, former Eastern Europe, if you like, <coughs> and, and found just a few hours away from Sweden that he could get the s uh, furniture for about half the price of what it cost in Sweden. At that time, no Western um, retailers sourced from Eastern Europe. So everything that was produced in Eastern Europe was either sold in their own country or, or um, uh, shipped to the Ru uh, sold in Russia, so to speak. So it was behind the, the Iron Curtain. Now, uh, the suppliers in, in, in Poland didn't really know how to <coughs> produce the quality type of furniture that IKEA needed. So that's really how own product development started at IKEA. So, so you can say the, the, the biggest favor that the competition could do to IKEA was to persuade the suppliers in Sweden not to sell to IKEA. Because as a consequence of that, IKEA started own product development and it also embarked on the low price profile. Because when you could buy the products at 50% of what you had bought them, or where all the competitors paid for the similar products, you obviously could sell your products at a very low price and still make money. So the whole low price profile and uh, the establishment of own product uh, came from, from, from this happening. So it just shows you shouldn't try to, to unduly stop competition. It, it can backfire. <coughs> So IKEA started its own product development and, and from, you can say in the 60s, this whole concept evolved where IKEA built up a concept that was totally different to what everyone else did uh, at the time. So uh, the home furnishing um, retailing market uh, was specialist, small specialist shops in the city centers selling only lamps or only sofas or only beds. IKEA came with big stores out of town selling everything for the home. <coughs> they were, all the other retailers were selling supplier brands. IKEA started with their own brand. All the other retailers was basically 
and we are in Sweden now, but I think it was pretty much the same in all countries, were catering to middle-aged, higher income target groups. IKEA decided to target families, young families with children with limited money. <coughs> um, all the others um, uh, offered assembled products delivered to your house, of course, at the price. And IKEA introduced flat pack uh, furniture uh, that you had to bring home yourself and, uh, and, and, and put together. The whole idea, again, going back to the vision, how can we strip the price as much as possible so it's affordable to you of good design and good quality. So we always looked upon you as customers, part of our supply chain. Uh, you, you, you did part of the job, basically. I mean, you came into the store, you picked the stuff, you went through the checkout, you paid it, you took it home, you put it together yourself. Uh, now, a lot of companies do that, but back in the 60s, this was uh, very new and very original, if you like. <coughs> and then on top of that, you had the IKEA values that, uh, at the time at least, was very different to what other companies did, especially when, when IKEA uh, went abroad, because the whole philosophy of the staff at IKEA was that uh, a store manager he had the same sweatshirt as on as, as everyone else in the store. And, and, and uh, when IKEA came to Germany, which was a very conservative country, and everyone, you know, all the managers had suits like this in their own, in the stores. Now we're talking in the stores. In their own offices and secretaries and, and uh, private parking spaces and, and private eating rooms. And, you know, you, as a staff member, you couldn't even talk to them, basically. <coughs> IKEA came there and... and T-shirts and jeans, the manager looked exactly like everyone else, and you could say hey and hello to everyone, and, and, and uh, yeah, now I'm back to the culture. But part of the culture was how can we break down all invisible or visible barriers between coworkers and managers, and that is really taking away all the perks, <coughs> like, like private parking, special eating places, uh, you know, the clothing, uh, checking in and out every day, uh, your own, your own uh, offices, etc. <coughs> so, so by taking away all those things, uh, we felt we could come closer to the co-workers and then create this culture. So anyway, doing all these things differently set IKEA apart from the competition in the 60s. Uh, well, very, very much so. We, we, they, IKEA transformed the way you did home furnishing retailing, basically. <coughs> And what we have done since then is basically export that concept. We've, we've improved it, we've, it's evolved, but there hasn't been any revolutionary changes to the concept since the 60s. We've done small changes all along that, for your eyes, you wouldn't see the difference. If you came into a new store that's been rebuilt 20 years, from, from 20 years earlier, you may see a difference, <coughs> but on an everyday basis, you don't really see it. So the same concept has, has has been and, and what, it, what it boils down to from a customer perspective is of course that IKEA offers unique products with a unique design, Scandinavian design, unique products in the sense you can only get them in IKEA store at prices that are always or should always be at least 20% below what the competition has at similar type of products. <coughs> so good value for money, unique products, everything in one place. You only have to go to one place if you want everything for your home instead of uh, going around to a lot of different places. <coughs> and IKEA offers um, um, solutions to your problems and ideas through the room sets in the stores and the catalog. <coughs> so we, we put things together 
So we don't just sell products, we sell, sell whole solutions for your home. And that's really what people want. You want good value for money, you want unique products, uh, you want an easy shopping experience where you can go to one place and you want solutions and ideas to, to how you want to put things together. So if you can, or when, or if you can provide all those benefits to customers, uh, well, that's, then you are successful. Most competitors don't. I mean, if you look in home furnishing um, uh, competition to IKEA, you would have some low-price home furnishing retailers. Uh, I can't think of a good example in the UK right now, but you know, the big box, very low, stripped down, low-price retailers, they compete with IKEA on price, but nothing else. You have the high, high street design boutiques, they compete with IKEA obviously on design and product, but not on price. And, and you have the specialist stores, they may be good at one part of the range, but you don't have the totality. Almost no one shows solutions to the customers. So <laughs> they can compete with IKEA on maybe one or two uh, of the points that, that uh, the customer benefits that I explained to you. But the totality, so far at least, I would say IKEA is pretty alone with. So in that case, you can say one plus one makes three. Uh, we, we have this whole whole package of customer benefits. And as long as IKEA can continue to produce that, obviously they will be successful. <coughs> okay, I don't know how much time do I have left. Well, um, <laughs> we should leave some time for um, Q&A. Yeah, now I've, I've covered two on my four points, so either we, we, we stop here and you ask questions. I think, I think that, that this is good. Um, Shall we do that? Otherwise, I see some of you are flicking with your eyes, so I'm, I'm sure you're falling asleep. Half of you, unless we stop. Okay, well, let, before we move on to the questions, uh, let us uh, thank Mr. Dalvik for this fantastic presentation. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Okay, um, now we do have time for questions, um, and um, here's what I'd like to do um, let's have um, questions that are brief um, and clear um, so that uh, we can keep an engaging conversation. Um, there's a Robbie microphone, um, so um, the uh, floor is yours. Okay. Okay, we have um, the gentleman from the back uh, here and there. Go ahead. Hi, my name is Ian Mihailovic, and my question is um, can you suggest other sectors where the principles um, that you've been using in IKEA could, be, could also work in, in other sectors, you know, where they're not being employed right now? Uh, in, in terms of, of owning the supply chain or, or the value chain, you mean? Where in, you in terms of the approach that IKEA has, uh, has used, it, you know, it was it an was innovative approach where you could disrupt, let's say, another sector by using some some similar approaches. So you could you know, learn mm. some lessons, you know, from re the retailing sector that IKEA has applied, and then use it to you know, apply it to a different sector. Well not out of the top of my head. I mean, if I could, I probably, this probably would be done by someone. I, I think where, in terms of, of the point of, of being able to own the whole value chain, um, it seems like fashion is uh, the, the, the most common place where this is fairly easy to do. I mean, to, you, can, you can produce fairly easily and then you can start selling it. And that's where you have many of these companies. Like I said, H&M and Inditex, I think, are, are two very good examples of that. In home furnishing, you, d you have it as well. Um, I think to, to start from scratch now and do, th do this whole journey in the, in is, is 
really difficult. And I can't, uh, unfortunately, give you a very good example of, of something where it could be done, where it isn't done today. But, uh, but I really think you should have that in mind when you think about companies. To what extent is it possible to control the whole value chain or not? Uh, whatever it is you, you're thinking and looking at. Control is not the same as owning. You don't have to own the production facilities, but you can control it. Uh, so, so there are various ways of doing this, of course, financially. But uh, I'm sorry, I don't have a good idea. <laughs> Some good ideas, thanks. Uh, we have another question from the gentleman on the uh, checker shirt, and then I see two more hands. Um, yeah. I'm sure you can just say it, and I, I can repeat the question. I think it's better with the microphone, because then okay. it, it, this gets recorded. Okay. Uh, and by the way, this okay. also reminds me that Sorry. I should give the uh, Twitter hashtag for this event. Uh, <laughs> it's LSE, and this thing is better. It's LSE IKEA. Go ahead. Okay. Um, thank you for your talk. Um, what are the challenges you face to implement in, in the companies you are now in the board of, uh, the, the values you developed in I, at IKEA? Mm. What are the challenges you face to implement these, these values and um, overcome? Yeah, I mean, uh, there are some challenges. And I think uh, <coughs> it very much comes down to this point that we didn't talk about, the, the type of ownership you have. And, and uh, if, if you look at the two opposing uh, forms of ownership, one being the diluted ownership that you have in many public UK companies being listed on the stock exchange here, owned by funds, um, basically. And then the other extreme is the 100% ownership uh, not listed uh, company like IKEA, for instance. Then They have their pros and cons, both of these uh, forms. I think if one should look at the, the, the positive side of being listed with a diluted ownership structure, uh, one is, of course, transparency, which I think is very good in the sense that, you know, you, you have to t tell everything, so everything is out there. <coughs> and, and that is a disadvantage for a company like IKEA. Usually when IKEA gets criticized, it is because of this, that it's too secretive. Yeah. And when you are secretive, uh, of course, there are suspicions that you are doing something you shouldn't. Uh, and this, this boils down to your organization structure, your your financial model, etc. So that's one positive. Um, another one, of course, is financing if you need money. Um, and then the third and most important one, I think, with uh, being public is the, the opportunity for people to become owners of that company uh, in a market set price, so to speak. You can buy and sell shares. Uh, and and, and I, I think it's a really strong motivator, of course, is to be, be owner of a company. The negative, um, of being in this position obviously is what I like about privately owned companies or or listed companies who are controlled by one uh, founder for instance is the, the long term and, and the risk taking uh, possibilities that you have uh, and, and where I feel that a, <coughs> a, a real important part for the success of IKEA is the fact that we had an owner or have an owner who uh, is willing to take risk and have a very long-term perspective of all decisions and everything we do. And, and it is on those occasions where IKEA have taken risk and have taken the long-term view is where we have taken leaps ahead of the competition. Like, like I explained Russia as an example. I don't think any public company in the UK would have gone into Russia in '99, investing four billion uh, pounds uh, into that country, for instance. 
and therefore they are not in the position IKEA is today. So, so this, this is what private ownership does. And coming back to your question then, uh, what private ownership does e or makes easier is of course the whole proposition of having a social ambition with your company and your value base. Because this, this owner, he decides what he wants to do with his company. Yeah, in a different way. When you have a diluted ownership owned by, by, <coughs> by different funds, it's extremely hard, of course, because they get rewarded f not for being long-term, they don't get rewarded for um, having a socially uh, responsible company and all these other things, they just get rewarded. And, and they are very short-term, they sell and buy, they don't have any relationship to the company at all. So, so that, I think, is the biggest uh, challenge in, in that particular part. So the question is, of course, what do you do then? I mean, one way is to, to have more privately owned or um, owner-controlled uh, uh, businesses, listed or not listed. So uh, in Sweden, we have a preferred shares uh, system. I know it exists here in the UK as well. Uh, in Sweden, it's, it's widely used. So on the Swedish stock exchange, you have many, many companies with one controlling owner. But it is listed, so you have all the upsides of it in terms of transparency and possibility to buy and sell shares and, and, and funding. <coughs> so that's a very common system. And I, I know the EU has wanted to, to change this system because when you have preferred share system, obviously some for the same price, you, you have 10 voting rights for, for some, and someone else has one. And, and there is the fairness discussion around this, then, you know, shouldn't all shares be, be equal? My view is, no, they, should, they shouldn't. I think the preferred share system is good because it makes it possible to do all the things that IKEA have done. Uh, a founder who has grown up a company, wants to list it for whatever reason, can keep control, can keep those values in the company uh, if they have these um, social ambitions, think long-term, take risk. And whoever wants to, to invest in that company and believe in that person can do that, obviously, uh, on, the, on, the, um, on the stock exchange. I know this is not very used here in the UK and in the US, in the Anglo-Saxon countries, for, for whatever reason. But one way could obviously be that more companies went down that route. <coughs> uh, I know Facebook is doing that now, for instance. So if that could be a trend for the future, I think it would be for the benefit of, of, of those things that you ask about. If that's not possible, it's more challenging. And I, I can see um, then you need a very strong board and a very strong CEO who wants to promote these things and have a, a fantastic track ro record of showing good results every year so that they are given the freedom to do this with their institutional shareholders. So, and that's not that easy either because most CEOs don't stay long enough to to, to be able to perform that. I think on average maybe five years in a public company as a CEO is here in the UK. And, and it, you probably have to have a 10-year perspective on your, on your engagement, I would think, to be able to have that track record and really move the company in that direction. So I'm not extremely hopeful, but that's the, the only two, two ways that I can see right now. <coughs> Very good. Um, so I remember there was a question over there. I don't see uh, the hand anymore. Okay, I saw your hand. Um, and, but I think that it was uh, my colleague Michael Marcelli first, then the lady, and then there was a few hands over here. I'll come back to you. Okay. Go ahead, Michael. 
Thank you. Um, I'm, uh, I, I think it's a great presentation. The, it illustrates many uh, probably beliefs that people already share, and I, I just thought maybe we could highlight a few more of the uh, um, complications of running a business like that that you probably solved, found a way around that um, might be more of the subtle conclusions. For example, um, it sounds as if that it sounds as if the company was involved in coming up with innovative designs, but not actually doing the production. Um, and so you had a kind of organizational separation between the the designers and the producers, the, the manufacturers. Um, I I wonder uh, you you must have found a way to close that loop, so to speak, <clears throat> so that uh, those relationships worked over time, and you got to learn, for example, how to actually make things cheaply. Uh, through manufacturing and not only uh, source uh, uh, materials cheaply. Um, so I'm just wondering how you maybe transferred your design-oriented culture from uh, IKEA itself to it to the uh, supply chain and, and that sort of thing. There might be some interesting lessons in that. Okay. <clears throat> I'll, I'll have to be brief, I guess. I could, it, this is a big subject. You could talk long, long about that. But um, no, I, I think. Um, the way we looked upon product development was that we've always seen ourselves as a product-oriented company rather than a market-oriented company. It may sound strange. I mean, if you look at IKEA, you think we are so well in tune with, with the market and the customers. And I think we are. But, but the, the view is that when we develop products, we start with the production side. So our product developers work in close in a close relationship with our suppliers. They work on the factory floor, basically. You know, they have their office uh, almost in the factory, on the factory floor. So, so to become a product developer and product designer at IKEA, you have to develop first a very deep understanding of the production um, facilities and, and how, how the production runs. Because again, if you go back to the vision, if you want to have the best price and be affordable to the many people, you have to put production at the forefront in your priority, how you develop your product. So, so if, you, if you look at the, if you want to produce a Billy bookcase, um, for instance, the starting point is not, do you want this bookcase to be this wide or this wide? The starting point is, uh, do you, Mr. Supplier, how, how, how wide should it be to take out the maximum of the material use in that product in, in your, when you get your big logs from wherever you get it, the way you cut it. So you don't have any spilling or, or, or you know, whatever you call that, uh, loss of material. Then we will produce, design the product so it maximizes uh, the way you produce it, if you understand what I mean, as an example. And, and, and for all products, that's how we look upon it. So the starting point is the production, and, and they're very integrated. And, and product designers in most other parts of the world would be people who go to design school in New York, and then they sit in an office here, probably, and design their chairs and think that they should be fancy and nice, and they don't have a clue about how the production of that chair is done. And then when it, 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 and then when it comes to the supplier, they will do the product because that's what they're told to do, but of course the price would be extremely high because the designer had no clue of, of how that impacted the whole production process. And then you get very expensive products in the, in the designer boutiques here in London. <coughs> so, but we, we always work the other way around. 
As I said, I can talk hours about this, but uh, I'll, I'll think I'll leave it here. So, so, Very good. Um, so I see a hand there, another one there, <laughs> one in the back, and also I'll have a question later. Go ahead. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, my question is relating to uh, payments and the checkout experience, which is that uh, retailers here and IKEA especially, they may have a great experience in the store, but there's a huge bottleneck when you come to the checkout because mm. essentially it's jammed, especially on a weekend, and you know, it takes forever to get all the checkout. Mm. Now, formats are changing. Mobile payment technology you know, is there. In Apple, you can, uh, each of the people mm. actually has their own device. Yeah. I'm curious yeah. as to have you battled with that and experimented with different formats and uh, mm. that p part of the process, how have you addressed yeah. it? I don't think uh, being at the forefront of technology is not really what I'm most proud of when it comes to IKEA. I, I think there are other areas where we are better. And, and um, in terms of the checkout experience, we, we have this self-scanning stuff as well. I don't know if you, I'm sure they are in the British stores now as well. Um, and I don't know how recent your experience of long checkout uh, line is, is. It used to be terrible if we go back 10, 15 years. <coughs> At least our research show that it's pretty okay now. The bottleneck is Saturday afternoon. But if you go all the other days of the week, or all the other times of the week, so it's those whatever 10, 15% of our turnover that comes on the Saturday afternoon that, that where I'm sure there is a potentially still a problem. But uh, for, I don't know if you have been on a Monday f morning or, a, or, a, or even a Saturday morning for that matter. Uh, it's, it's probably pretty okay. When it comes to mobile uh, technology, payments, etc., I'm sure that will come, but I don't think you will find that IKEA will ever be at the forefront of this. Uh, there's always been a bit of a wait-and-see culture when it comes to technology. Apart from the supply chain, there I think technology-wise we are top standard, but, but when it comes to the customer um, meeting, when technology, uh, we're further behind. Okay, it's the, uh, you still have a question? Is the lady in blue? Go ahead. Thank you. Uh, my question is related to the previous question on the supply chain. And I'm thinking more about the, um, the supplier of the raw materials. Because when you're looking for probably reduce the price, you might face the, re face the risk of uh, getting probably cheap raw materials from not very reliable sources. So my question is how do you uh, manage this risk and make sure that you pay fair prices uh, from reliable sources? And I'm thinking, for example, the wood or the cotton or any other materials that you use in your production. Okay. Um, yeah, this is. Um, um, we have a, a code of conduct that was established in the um, uh, in 2000, approximately, <coughs> where we have laid down the foundation for all these things. How we how we act when it comes to in our supplier relationship, in terms of working conditions, and in terms of how we source the raw material and how we we. We, we look at, at, at where it sources, etc. So we employed, uh, if, if you take the raw material of, of wood, and which is a big ingredient obviously in our products, <coughs> we employed 20 forest experts uh, from, from forest specialist schools, whatever, uh, <laughs> uh, university, uh, who, who um, um, 
got their offices out in our different supplier offices in the organization. And their, their um, priority was to, to uh, track uh, the, the, the logs or the, the, the timber that we were buying all the way back to source. So that we could find, uh, as you say, make sure that we were not taking from virgin forest or, or, or forest that was not regrown, etc. So they did a great job. And, and, and sometimes when um, uh, people say it's not possible to do all this environmental work and social work because it, uh, without it costing a lot of money, you know, this whole discussion about profitability versus doing social responsibility and environmental things. <coughs> and and uh, I have never seen, uh, I, can't, I can't come up with one example really where taking social... Um, and environmental measures has cost the company uh, so something that has an effect on the profitability. Yeah. In most cases, when you do something um, uh, for the environment, if you like, it's about using less resources. And using less resources usually implies lower costs and, and, a, and a cheaper price. You could obviously find an example where you have to make an investment in a water treatment plant for, for X millions at the suppliers. That is a very big investment. But again, then, if like IKEA, your your relationships with uh, your your main suppliers is long term, 10, 15 years, obviously that investment is possible to make because the supplier knows that or have agreements with us. When it comes to the wood thing, and that was really what where I got on this track here, is that these forest experts, you could you could argue then that okay, you know, recruiting 20 forest experts. Uh, in order to live up to environmental standards is, is a costly thing and why should you do that? But what they did was that they helped us understand um, how the log works in terms of production. So uh, I think we didn't really know, at least our, our purchasers didn't know that if you take a log and want to use it for furniture, uh, in the past they, you only use about 15% because the quality of the log is such that the middle is very good and then the quality becomes worse. And then if you want this particular product, you can only use this little part here and the rest gets burnt or, 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 or wasted. Now by understanding the different qualities of the log, we could then develop different products for the different qualities. So we said, okay, for this particular table that is a high quality, higher priced, we want to use the, the middle here. But then we can use this for a small little uh, cheap chair that, that is used uh, in the back parts of your etc. So, so we could develop, again, going back to your question, we could develop different products to use more of the material in the log. And if we could take out maybe 50% of that log instead of 15, that would have an, or had an incredible impact on the price of the product. And we helped save the environment because we obviously didn't have to fell as many trees. <coughs> So, so those uh, forest experts actually helped IKEA become more efficient. It wasn't just a cost to, to live up to some kind of environmental standards. And there are many examples of this. <coughs> okay. The uh, gentleman uh, in the shirt has been holding the microphone for some time. <laughs> Hi. Uh, so you are a, a retail expert today. And um, one of the shifts that the retail industry has experienced over the last 10 years was the advent of the e-commerce, right? Mm -hmm. And I would like you to share your thoughts with us about e-commerce and how you faced this topic when you were the CEO at uh, 
I, I care because you were there, you know, between mm. the end of the 90s and uh, 2009. And then, what would you say today to your uh, to people at HM and Kingfisher, since you are on the on the board of these companies? Yeah, well, um, at least so far, uh, there's a huge difference between different sectors in terms of, of how, how much or how applicable e-commerce seems to be. I mean, no, long term, I'm sure everything will be bought that way, but at least today, uh, I mean, if you look at books and music as versus furniture, for instance. So e-commerce does already exist uh, in IKEA and has for quite a long time, but not in all markets. So in Sweden, for instance. And I think um, there it's about 5% of the turnover. And at H&M, they also have it, and it's about 5% or something of, of, of the turnover today. But it's growing faster than everything else, as we all know. So if turnover in H&M today is plus 3% per year, the e-commerce is 20 something like that. So, so it's, it is growing, but from a low base and it will take some time. So uh, I think what everyone is into now is, is the, 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 the modern world right now in retailing is multi-channeling. <coughs> everyone is talking. I, every company I, I sit in have a multi-channel strategy now. That's the big thing. So it's about how you integrate all, all these devices and how you can interact with the company wherever you are if it's a phone or if it's a computer or, or whatever, and you can do whatever you want to do with everything from just searching information to buying. So there is tons and tons of millions and millions of money being invested into IT consultants and, and, uh, and IT systems as we speak to develop the, the whole infrastructure for most retailers today. Uh, to be able to do this. So, so what I'm saying really is that there's a huge belief that the future is in multi-channeling. And, and, and there is a, maybe a slight difference between multi-channeling and e-commerce. E-commerce would be one part of that. Or e-commerce, I, I guess, is really just how you choose to pay the products at the end of the day, if you do it on the net or in the store or on the mobile, etc. So it's, it's part of all this. Um, IKEA, I'm not sure exactly, I'm not working with the company today, so I only hear it secondhand from my old colleagues, but are of course working on this strategy as well. Um, when I left, we had about 500 million visitors, visits to our site a year, uh, from basically zero five years earlier, or ten years earlier. So it, but the visits to the site, in the IKEA case, um, we used internet or, or our sites there to prepare the customer for the store visit rather than uh, buying. You, you could buy, but the whole idea was to, to, and I think that's an important thing, is if you want to continue increase productivity in retailing, which you have obviously if you want to be successful, <coughs> one of the main ways is of course to make you do more of the job as a customer while still thinking you do less, or thinking the service increase. <coughs> so, so um, and there the internet has a huge role to play and, and, um, in, in preparing you for the visit. So when you come to the store, you have all the information, or you've done all the homework, you don't need to talk to the staff, and, and you go about what you want to do. Um, kitchen, kitchen planning is a good example of that, for instance. Um, <coughs> 
in the past you had to go to the store and you had to come maybe five times with plans and, and, and discussing and, and planning it etc today you can plan anything at home you, you just download the planners and you do the whole work you send it to the store they do a few corrections if needed send it back to you and then you, you can just place the order <coughs> from your home even without even going to the store most people will go there anyway to look at stuff but you can actually you take out, you do much, you do maybe 80% of the planning for the kitchen instead of before 20. So, so and, and this you can apply for all kinds of, of product categories, not only kitchens, that could be for wardrobes or, or any complicated product. So, so I think the multi-channeling is huge on the retail agenda. There's been a lot invested in all retailers at the moment. How much of that will actually be bought on the internet versus the store? is anybody's guess today. I think some retailers are already talking about downsizing the store size, reducing the, the footprint and the square meters of their stores uh, in, in anticipation of, of, a <coughs> of a higher d uh, demand on the internet. But it's also cost pressures, etc. Of course, it's, it's convenient to decrease your store size. So that's a lot going on. <coughs> okay. Um, <coughs> So uh, we have basically about uh, five minutes left. So I'm going to suggest that we um, have rounds of three questions. Um, so uh, I saw there were some hands. Uh, people still wanted to ask questions. OK. So I'm going to take uh, the question from the gentleman in the back, then the other gentleman, and then I'll take a turn. Uh, and then you know, he'll, 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 he'll uh, reply. And then we'll see if we have time uh, for more. Go ahead. Thanks. In, I was very interested in your, your, uh, your uh, almost graphic description of the tension between retailers and producers. And, and uh, so I was wondering, you know, furniture was an industry 30 years ago that was fragmented. There was no, basically, very little branding. And, and you said whoever owns the consumer or has the contact with the consumer will win. Um, I was wondering if you can expand on that. And you actually mentioned wine, which is interesting because it's a very fragmented industry with very low brand awareness in front of the, you just go to the store, you buy whatever, but nobody has really retailed wine in a kind of global scale like you've done. Uh, wine? Yeah, I mean, the, there are some examples, but nothing to the level of success, but just as an example of, of a, you, you could pick up any other industry. So I wonder in that, in, that, in that kind of fight between the retailers and the producers to get that uh, relationship with the, with the consumer, uh, how, do you, how is that going to play out? Is there any industries where you, I mean, not back to the first question in terms of examples of industries, but is there anything recent that you've seen? For example, Zappos with, with uh, shoes, right? So these guys just came around and, and built from scratch something that, uh, or Patagonia, for example, uh, many years ago. Is, is, there, is there an angle that has to do with technology, with the right kind of culture in the company? To, uh, I don't know. Uh, okay. Let's take one more, and then, and then I'll ask a question, and then you okay. get a chance to okay. pick and choose. Go ahead. <laughs> well, it's a beautiful presentation, and I must uh, compliment you. Thank you. Post-CEO, you have been holding a number of assignments as independent director in a number of companies. So how many do you think should be restricted to a post-CEO? How many should be the maximum you should hold as uh, independent director? Thank you. Okay, very, very concrete, very clear question. Okay, I'll start. Uh, 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 may, may I ask my question, and then, and then you okay, pick and choose. Okay, I'll see if I can remember them all. That's I, I, I've been storing the question for a few minutes now. Mm. 
Well, one of the things that I've been uh, most surprised about the presentation and, and most, I found more, most interesting is this emphasis in the low price. And, um, you know, the idea that, you know, you, you, you're, you're trying to produce something that the consumers don't have to pay a lot for, uh, which is extremely simple, but yet very powerful. Now, we're used to companies that, you know, compete in a, what's called, you know, cost leadership. But typically, the idea in these companies is, you know, we pay little to everybody, and, 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 and that's it. But this is a very different uh, notion, where it seems that the principle is, the idea behind, behind it is sort of like the fair deal, that the consumer gets a fair deal, the employee gets a fair deal, and everybody gets a fair deal. And so it seems that this is something really very powerful. And I'm wondering, to what extent is this something that is going to become bigger? Um, and for example, I'm from Spain originally, and you know we have a crisis in case somebody you know doesn't hasn't, hasn't heard it. And you know it's interesting that now we have all these stores calling themselves low cost in English, low cost, you know, cropping up everywhere. So it seems that this notion of the fair deal and the low price is spreading widely. Mm. So I'm wondering, you know, is this something that is going to be like a fleeting development? Uh, in a context of crisis, or, or do you see something bigger here? Mm. And, and if you do, then maybe perhaps could you speculate? Um, in the context of uh, politics, uh, what needs to happen? Or in the context of even management education, what needs to happen for this message to spread out and this to become something bigger than just a temporary thing? Mm. Okay, so uh, I'll see if I remember. Try to remember all the, all all the questions. questions. I'll take the board one first, because that's the simpler one. Um, I don't think there is one answer to that. I think I'm on about eight different boards today, and I, don't, I wouldn't take more than that. Uh, but that's my personal opinion, and how much you can do or to do it properly. I mean, you can go to a lot of board meetings, but if you want to contribute to that company in, in various ways, I think maybe seven, eight is, is a max, uh, in my opinion. Uh, now let me see, what was your <laughs> question again? Uh, you wanted to know uh, whether this, um, this concept of the whole supply chain was possible for other businesses, is that correct? Or uh, mainly which industries do you think uh, the retailers will win, which ones will win, yeah, okay. brands Yeah, I don't. Uh, I'm not sure if a particular in. Of course, where the brands are weaker, the the likelihood is bigger that the retailers will win, and 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 that is like I said, DIY. I think has a is a sector with a lot of potential there, because I mean, what brands do you know in DIY? Uh, yeah, maybe you can name a few, but it's, it's not it's not that many. So I think that lends itself to, to it very well. I think uh, food business is more difficult. There's so much regulation around food, uh, security issues, health issues. For a retailer to be able to control that for a range of hundreds of thousands of products, basically, at a, at a reasonable price, um, I don't think that. That's why I said I think maybe you can go to a level of maximum 50% own brand there. But I think the strong ones like Unilever and Nestle will continue to be strong. Uh, and it will be difficult for retailers to, to take the whole, uh, the whole, the whole thing uh, in the traditional sector. 
Electronics, I, I don't know. I mean, there the whole thing about e-commerce is playing out as well, you know, what channel to, to use, and that will have an impact on, 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 on that. Traditional retailing seems to be dying, dinosaur in electronics. Uh, I think it is here in the UK and in most countries that I see. People use stores to go and compare products, and then they go on the internet and buy it from someone else. Uh, and and uh, it, it's really becoming a, 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 an internet business. So I would assume that the traditional electronic retailers will all be gone unless they transform themselves into a, uh, to a, a multimedia retailers in some way or shape or form. And what impact that will have, we, we will have to see. So. Um, I re don't really have a good answer. I think it depends really much uh, on the sector there. Um, your question on price um, and how important that is. Um, in all those sectors that I talked about where you have the brand owners and the retailers, what happens to price in that sector is that in reality everyone wants to keep the price high. So, so the, the brand owners, uh, you know, Unilevers and these guys, or Electrolux if it's electronics, or, or, or and, and the retailers, it's in their both their interests that there is no price competition. <coughs> so, so the brand owners dictates the price to the retailers. They cannot, in law, do that, but they do in in various ways or the way they talk about it. They. They obviously can find other reasons to not supply you with a product unless you sell it at the price they want to. So, um, if the retailer is really strong, uh, the bigger retailers they can't dictate it in the same way because they they are the, they are dependent on that retailer. But there's still always that discussion. The retailers, because they all offer the same products in in the, when we have this type of relationship. You go into it's the same kind of beans if you go into Tesco's or Morrison's or Sainsbury's or, or wherever you go. It's not in their interest to to reduce the prices either, because they all buy it at the same price here. Any price reduction <coughs> will just uh, have an impact on, on their margin. And as I said in the beginning, they're all margin driven. And their share price is margin driven. There is nothing the anal analysts look at more than the margin when they analyze the, the quarterly profits. If the profit margin goes down 0.2%, uh, the share price takes a plunge. So they're totally focused on the margin. <coughs> so they get it for the same price. If they start price competing, they will start the price war on the products that will just leave everyone worse off, you know, basically. <coughs> so, so it's in everybody's interest to keep the price the same, but to you, towards you, the customer, look like you are uh, competing. So that's why you have all these offers all the time. You know, in the newspapers every day uh, there, there is a bargain this and there's a bargain, bargain that and there is uh, offers and special sale and blah blah blah. In reality, of course, it's not really. You know, that they put down the price on that product but they have five in stock so, so uh, you know, one hour after opening it's gone for those who come later or they put up the price on another product, or they put up the price on that product before they put it on sale, so that they can put it down 20%. There's a lot of fishy game going out uh, on here. I mean, it's, it's a really ugly business, if you like. <coughs> and it's because you have these two, again, 
no, everyone sells the same products. Everyone relies on, on these other people here. So, <coughs> so and, and the retailers don't obviously like this. You know, they want to be competitive, but they can't. So, and then they see how now, when we have bad times, uh, what happens obviously is that people become more price sensitive. They have to have even more sales and more price reduction and, and, and deteriorating margins to get some volume sales. And, and um, they want to get out of this. So everyone, everyone, but you must see this on a regular basis, a retailer starts saying, now we have everyday low price. We don't do sale anymore or we don't do bargains anymore. Now it's everyday low price. No one believes in this. Uh, so the consumer stops buying, they still want to bargain, and then they have to go back to the bargaining situation. So it's, a, it's a, like a, a, a wheel, a destructive wheel that just takes you further and further down on, on, on this road here. That's where the, I think companies like IKEA has a huge advantage. I mean, IKEA never do this, or very seldom do this sale thing. And, and, uh, because we have invested in low prices since the beginning for 40, 50 years. And I think most of you trust us that when you come to IKEA, you will get the best price, or, or at least one of the better prices, <coughs> without us having to screaming and saying, you know, bargain this and 50% off and 20% off. And in reality, when you look at the prices, we will be cheaper than those who have 20-50% off in most cases for, for similar products. So through investing and, and being so sticking to our philosophy for 40-50 years, we have built up the relationship with our customers, as have H&M, where people trust us to have the best price. And we can have the best price because we control the value chain, going back to that. We don't have this uh, bargaining situation. So uh, I don't know if that was an answer to your question, but uh, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, at least it was a bit about pricing. Okay. Well, um, we could mm -hmm. have gone for a lot longer, um, okay. even the interest in the topic. Um, uh, before we conclude, I want to uh, mention that um, Mr. Dabig has written a book on this. Um, it's titled The IKEA Edge, and he's going to be, uh, there's a book sale outside, and um, is it correct you're going to be signing copies I can if of you the want. book? <laughs> yes. Um, so before we close then, uh, just uh, to thank uh, Mr. David for such an incredibly interesting presentation. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.